0: The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Have you ever felt like you were drowning? Have you ever been swept under an ocean wave or perhaps more likely fallen off an inner tube while tubing on the lake? Have you ever fallen out of a boat or fallen into the deep end? You reach for the bottom, you scratch, For the surface of the water, nothing. Can't find it. Panic, despair, they set in, they crush inward on you. Maybe your drowning isn't in water. Maybe it's in schoolwork, right? You've waited all semester. The project is due tomorrow. Maybe it's in work work. You can't solve this problem in your job, your future, your family's livelihood is on the line. Maybe it's in a relationship with your spouse, your parents, in-laws, perhaps. There's conflict. There's unrelenting issues. You feel the stress and the despair come up to your neck. And you feel like you are on your way down. Despair. Our psalmist knows that, that feeling this morning. We read Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Hear the word of the Lord. more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. God, we thank you for your word, the story, your grace. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, we are so prone to drown. We are so prone to feel ourselves sinking down in the cares of life, in the sins of our hearts, and only your word, only you, can redeem us from our depths of despair. Speak, O Lord, please, and open our ears and our hearts to listen. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. We know that feeling of despair, the feeling of drowning, right? Whether it's in real water, whether it's in real schoolwork or work, work, or relationships. We feel the stress perhaps fill our mouth and go down into our lungs. We feel the despair enter into our hearts, and what's worse than the stress that fills our mouths and our lungs and our hearts is the sin that underlies it, right? All these things, even the ability to drown exists for the very fact that we live in a broken and sinful world, that we are part of that broken and sinful world, and we wonder in all these circumstances, we wonder, can we be rescued? Is there redemption? Is there a morning where uh, the dawn will rise and the darkness really will be gone? Is there a hand that will reach out and lift me out of this drowning place that I am in? Psalm 130 shouts, yes, there is. Psalm 130 tells us that with God, this is our big thought here for today, with God, There is unfailing, overflowing redemption. Because of this, we can and we must, we must be freed, rescued to hope in God. Because there's redemption, we can be freed to hope in God. In our first point, or rather before we dive fully into our first point in verses 1 and 2, we should put some flesh on this word redemption or redeemer. Now, what is it? A redeemer is someone who usually, at great cost to themselves, they buy back. They win back. They set free someone from captivity or enslavement. So then redemption, if that's what a redeemer is, redemption is the event, right? Or it's the result of someone being brought back, set free, rescued. That's redemption. But people who aren't enslaved, people who aren't guilty, people who aren't drowning. They don't need a redeemer, do they? They don't need a rescuer to draw them out. Well, as we heard, that is not the type of person that we find in verses 1 and 2. He's praying two things. Hear me. Help me. Why? He's drowning. He's drowning in sin and actual guilt, real guilt that comes from it. It's this feeling we've been talking about, right? It's described well in Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2. That psalmist says, Save me. The waters come up to my neck. There's no foothold. The flood sweeps over my head. He's praying like someone stranded in the tide pool or stranded in the ocean. Hear me. Help me, Lord. We know it is sin and despair from actual guilt that he's drowning in. We we find that out in verse 3 because it mentions iniquity. Iniquity, another verse, or another word for sin. Now, it's not just the the feeling of drowning in sin or of elevated stress. Rather, the psalmist here is understanding the actual guilt he has before the holy, perfect, and righteous God. And notice that this prayer, it's not a collective, we are drowning. No, it's a, I, I am drowning. Hear, Hear my prayer. This is personal the psalmist knows that the only one who can hear, help, redeem, is the Lord, who just so happens to be the one he has offended, the one he has guilt before. We should see that the psalmist and our sin is so very serious. We are actually guilty of personally and profoundly offending the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we lived overseas and we spent a lot of, times, a lot of time with uh, our Muslim friends, I found it uh, difficult at times to really paint the picture of how offensive our sin is to God. Now, part of this is because of a different conception of God, one who's personal or impersonal, or even how uh, the Bible or the Quran talks about sin. But there was one illustration I found would often hit home, and it went like this. Imagine you slapped a rock. What would happen? Maybe your hand hurts, right? No offense to the rock, though. What if you slapped a child? Don't, don't do this, of course. But what would happen? Right? They might bite you. Your ears might hurt from the squeals or the screams. What if you slapped a man on the street? Maybe you'd receive a, a knuckle sandwich, right? What if you slapped a police officer? Maybe a similar physical reaction or maybe a fine. Maybe jail, right? Right? What if you slapped the president, or or maybe, let's say, a dictator in a far more lawless land? What should you expect? Death, most likely, right? What if you slapped the God who created the sun, the oceans, and your eyes? What if you slapped the God who made every single plant and animal, the God who made your mind, your emotions, your ability to love or to grieve? What if you personally and profoundly offended, slapped that God? what should you deserve? You have. I have. We, we have done this to God. With God, there is unfailing, overflowing redemption, but we cannot be actually free to experience that redemption, to hope in God without first knowing our sin against him, our guilt before him. When we do not honor God as king over all things, the one who deserves our praises, the one who deserves our our obedience, we sin. We're guilty. When we don't give thanks or use what's given to us for God's glory, we sin. We're guilty. It's like a child uh, receiving this momentous pile or mountain of uh, gifts on Christmas morning, and then they reply, meh, or no thanks are given back to the parent. We do this. King David, the greatest greatest king in all of Israel's history, he slapped God in the face, figuratively. But he slept with another man's wife. He got her pregnant. And then he had her husband killed, right? And then he confesses about this in Psalm 51. And what does he say? He says to God, against you, against you only have I sinned. Whoa, what about that guy? What about his wife, right? Well, David isn't dismissing the sins, but he's acknowledging that all wrongdoing towards others or towards anything is first against God. Why? Because all things are his. Everything you have is given to you. Your smile, your humor, your ability to hear, to eat, everything. And therefore, our sin is first against God. Have you ever prayed anything like verses 1 and 2 in your life? You can look at them again. Have you ever understood the depths of your rebellion against the God who has given you everything, every day? Have you felt the real drowning in guilt and prayed, Hear me, help me, redeem me, simply because you have nothing else to say except those three things. I've, uh, I've spoken to uh, many people who grew up going to church, especially in Wisconsin. And they look me in the eye and they say, I'm fairly a good person. Or I'm a fairly good person, rather. I'm not as bad as the next guy. But to them, Jesus and religion is a nice insurance plan. If anything should ever really or actually go wrong. But Jesus isn't truly lovely to them. And he's not lovely because he isn't truly necessary to them. He's not a redeemer. They don't need to be redeemed, they think. Their sin isn't all that serious. Is that you, by chance? With God, there is abundant redemption available, but if we don't understand that we are born drowning in sin and real guilt before a holy God, we will not feel the depths of our actual despair. We will not pray, hear me, help me, redeem me. We will not take hold of the nail-scarred hand of Jesus Christ that's outstretched for us. Friends, you were made indeed for redemption. You were set aside to be brought back, to be won back, to be set free. Today, perhaps for the first time, ask God to show you the personal and profound nature of your sin against him, your actual guilt, not so that you might stay there, This isn't meant to be manipulative to make you stay in this guilty state, but it's to help you understand how bad the news is. Actual guilt. Good news isn't very good unless we know that bad news is bad. Turn our attention, or let's turn our attention to verses three and four. It's our second point here. We hear more clearly still uh, that with God, there is redemption, forgiveness. And because of this, We hear that we can be freed from actual and felt guilt. Actual and felt guilt so that we might hope in God. Verse 3, we hear good news through the lens of bad news. If God would mark our iniquities, if he kept a record book of our sins, no one could stand bad news. And we've addressed this already, of course, right? Romans says it this way. No one is righteous, no, not one. All, all have fallen short of the glory of God. But even though God knows every single thought, deed, and motivation, he does, he's God, he is not sitting like a psychiatrist, peeking over a notebook, furiously writing down every single sin you commit. And this is good news, because some of us live as if that's God's other side job, upholding the universe and writing down every single one of your sins. But in verse 4, the good news gets better. It says this But with you, God, there is forgiveness. What is forgiveness? We use this word all the time. Well, to forgive is to cancel the debt of another against you, to cancel the debt of another against you. And it normally includes letting go of resentment, anger, bitterness. And so it's saying with God, there is a canceling of your actual debt. It's possible. So what kind of debts or sins can be forgiven? Well, look at verse 8. It tells us God will redeem Israel from all his sins. Another translation says from every kind of sin. Friends, this means that there is not a sin too ugly, too gross, too devilish that cannot be forgiven. In the second half of verse 4, the psalmist sings. Again, remember, they're singing. He sings that God forgives so that what? We would fear him. This seems maybe like a strange connection at first. But two weeks ago, we talked about fearing God, right? That we think highly of his greatness and his nearness. We revere him. We obey him. There's a relational component here. Maybe a, a good example of this type of connection is when you messed up that project, your teacher or your boss, when they forgave you, what happened? When your parent forgave you for that precious item you broke and they forgave you, what did you feel? Did you think less of them or did you think more? The person who had authority has given you kindness and mercy. No, you want to move closer. You want to fear and revere that person more. So that's how this connection is between forgiveness and fearing God. These two verses are absolutely beautiful, and they are filled with good news, but for some of us, no matter how much we are told about forgiveness, we live on with this perpetual sense of guilt. We can't shake it. I remember, um, I remember being 18 so long ago, decades. I remember being 18, a, a freshman at UW-Green Bay, and being entirely uninterested in God. But somehow, though, a friend convinced me to go to a Christian men's conference. He said, basketball, and I went. The good old bait and switch, we know it, Christians. And there, and there at that conference, I saw something I had never, ever seen. I saw my peers, and I saw older men confessing their sin boldly. I was utterly shocked. They confessed with hope and assurance that God forgave them. I stood in awe. I wanted that. No one had to tell me that I was a sinner. I lived in my filth every day. But for someone to tell me or at least show me before my eyes, there's forgiveness. There's freedom. There's a hand that draws you out. I longed for that. I wanted to hear that. It was about that time that I had a a life-transforming experience with God's forgiveness through belief in Jesus Christ and his work. But what I discovered through those years in college is that I constantly felt like I couldn't get my hands clean. I would continue on confessing, but I still felt God's disapproving look upon me. I would reach out to past relationships, past friendships, and I continued to confess, and sooner or later, I started to hear back from friends, Ben, we've, we've done this already. This is maybe the third time you've messaged me asking for forgiveness. And it's because I couldn't shake the feeling guilt. I couldn't get these hands clean. Is this you? Is this your life? Do you feel perpetually guilty? Now, let me clarify. I'm not talking about real guilt, right? Actual guilt that we do have before God. Rather, I'm talking about after you have believed in Jesus, your sin being washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, do you still feel God's disapproving look upon you? Do you live with this sense of, God doesn't really want to be near me? The perpetually guilty person can sound like this at times. I know God forgives me, but I just just can't forgive myself. The perpetually guilty person, when they sin, they just beat themselves up. Oh, I'm so dumb. No one likes me. No one should trust me. No one would want to be near me, this ongoing guilt over sin. Do you do this? Maybe you feel perpetual guilt because you have hidden sins. You have sins that you've never told anyone about. Sins that if you said them out loud, right, everyone would leave you, of course. My sins are too ugly, too gross, too great. Maybe they are sins from your youth. Or maybe they're sins from last night or this morning. Maybe the perpetual guilt is over a sin you just can't overcome. Or if you're honest, frankly, you just don't want to. Friends, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He did not come for the healthy. He came for the sick. Do you feel lost? Do you feel sick? Great. Jesus came for you. It's precisely who he came for, people like you and me. The self-help world tells us you just need to forgive yourself. And perhaps you have sinned against yourself. It's possible. But remember this, you are not your own. Your life, everything you have was actually given to you. Your life isn't your own. Therefore, your guilt is not against even you yourself first. It's against God. He's the only one who has the authority to condemn and to forgive. And if God says, you are forgiven, guess what? You are forgiven. Your feelings of being unforgiven, of perpetual guilt, you know what they are? Just that. Feelings. They are not a reality. In Hebrews ten seventeen, God says, right, for those who have trusted in Jesus, he says, I will remember their sins no more. Not only is he not fiercely scribbling a record, he says, I will remember their sins no more. With God, with God, there is unfailing and overflowing redemption, and you can be freed from actual guilt and felt, just perceived guilt as well. Also that you might hope in God. Today, if you have hidden sin, sin you can't overcome, sin you feel perpetually guilty for, please, please do not leave here without telling someone else. Please do not leave here without setting up a time to talk to someone else about it. Perhaps you've already done this. Perhaps you still feel the guilt, though. You've trusted in Jesus, but you still feel the guilt. I encourage you this morning to open your hands. Hear me, help me, redeem me, God. I know you have in Jesus. And say, God, will you give me the grace to experience the forgiveness that you've promised, the forgiveness that's mine by what you've done. Please pray that this morning. And perhaps every day of your life, because it's a battle to overcome guilt, I know. Let's look at our final uh, four verses, five through eight, and the final point. We again see that God's redemption is unfailing, overflowing, and because of it, We can be actually freed to hope in God until the day we see him face to face. In verses 5 and 6, we hear two repetitions. You can see them there. I wait, my soul waits for the Lord. Confident, expectant, waiting. Verse 6 says, My soul waits more than a watchman waits for the morning. What did watchmen do? They stood all night, what felt like an endless night, and they waited for two things. One, Are there enemies coming to the city? And two, better yet, they waited and looked at the horizon, waiting for the dawn to break, the city to be safe, their duty to be over. You've probably waited for a shift at work to be done. Come, O dawn, let me go home. Well, what is the psalmist so expectantly waiting for? The Lord, his word. In his word, I hope, it says... Because we're talking about forgiveness, commentators believe that perhaps the word that it's mentioned here relates to the one day a year that forgiveness would be declared by the priests in Israel. It was a day called the Day of Atonement. Now, the priests would sacrifice, and in their sacrificing for the forgiveness of sins, the spilling of blood, they would declare, those actions declared a word, forgiveness. The psalmist is singing about hearing that word, forgiveness. You are forgiven. It's better than hearing Merry Christmas on Christmas morning, right? They waited all year for that day. For us, there's no more Day of Atonement, no more sacrifice. The final Day of Atonement of sin happened. The words that declared forgiveness came off the lips of Jesus Christ, who hung on a cross for our sin, who was risen from the grave for our righteousness, to make us righteous. And what were those words? There were three. It is finished. It is finished. Forgiveness declared for all who would turn from their sin, from living for themselves, who would believe upon Jesus' death and his resurrection. The day of atonement, the forgiveness, the psalmist, says, he's joyously singing about it. How, look how happy he is. It was a shadow, though. It was a shadow of the reality that happens with Jesus. But he's still pretty excited about it. He's joyful, even over the shadow. So much so that in verse 8, he issues an invitation. What is it? Hope in the Lord. Why? Because his love does not, cannot fail. God's redemption, his buying back of you, his setting you free from sin and guilt, it overflows. Imagine a tidal wave. Imagine a hurricane sweeping into a city. No flood wall can stop it. No amount of sandbags can slow it. That is God's forgiveness and his redemption sweeping into the city of your hearts if you trust in Jesus Christ. The psalmist song in verse eight, seven and eight, reminds me of a moment on the Oprah Winfrey show. Please stick with me <laughs> on that. Uh, Oprah tended to be incredibly generous to her guests, and she was extremely so in 2004. Uh, she had every single person receive a small white box with a pretty red bow on it, and she made them all wait to open it together. And when they all did, you heard this cascade of squeals and shouts of joy, right? Especially because most of them were women's voices, right? Very a high pitch. Oprah had given everyone a box with a key inside to a brand new car. And there's the hilarious video of Oprah afterwards doing this dance. She says, you get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car, and and so on and so forth. She couldn't help but to issue the invitation. Come, get your car. The psalmist is singing out to you. You get redemption. You get redemption. You get redemption. It's possible. Come, hope in the Lord who gives redemption. Saints Redemption happened in history in a manger in a Bethlehem, a savior was born in the surroundings of Galilee. He did signs and works on a cross. he died, and he left a tomb empty in Jerusalem, and he said, "It is finished. You are forgiven." Some of our friends hosted a family from Africa uh, a couple years back. And uh, this family had just become Christians, actually, and they had come and they were telling stories. And they said, we'd shared our faith with everyone in our village and all the surrounding villages, and they, so many came to faith in Jesus. And then the, the family from Africa, Africa asked our friends, what about your village? What about your neighborhood? What about your neighbors? How many of them have come to faith in Jesus through what you've told them? How many of your neighbors have heard, you can have redemption You can have redemption. You can have redemption. Me too. I have neighbors who don't know that there's overflowing redemption in Christ Jesus, that don't know that overflowing redemption has come to our house through faith in Jesus, not on accord of what we've done. Saints, we must hold each other accountable and encourage one another to talk about this redemption, to send out invitations to the world. We need to ask hard questions, Have you told your neighbor yet? Have you told your parents? Have you told the parents on your kids' sports team about this redemption? In order to do this, to take steps for us to be like the psalmist and to issue those invitations, take a step of just starting to pray specifically for a neighbor, a neighbor or two at that. Pray for redemption to come to their homes. Pray that they'd ask you about the life that you have that's forgiven, that they see in your life. And then bring them cookies and be genuinely interested in them with questions. God is. Show it with those questions and be ready then to tell them about the redemption, the forgiveness that you've tasted, that you live with, that you enjoy. One more application for us before we leave this point. We've talked about all this is setting us free to do what? To hope in God. Okay? To hope in God. Do you know what hope is? What is hope? Hope is waiting for what we don't yet have. Or it's, it's waiting, hope is waiting with assurance for what we don't yet have. Yes, we have redemption. The psalmist waited for Christ. We don't. We have Christ. So what are we waiting for like children the night before a field trip? Right? Can't sleep. We are waiting for our redemption to become sight. We wait to see God face to face. We've been made sons, brothers to Jesus. We wait to see him face to face. That's what we're waiting for. How do we hope in God? Well, when, whenever we see the despair over our actual sinfulness, the actual sinfulness in the world, just watch the news, that entertainment system that is the news. You'll find some despair and some sin. We look at our neighbors, we look at ourselves, and we are discouraged in despair. How do we hope in God? Well, together, we put our eyes on the horizon. We wait for the rising of the sun, S-O-N, for his return where redemption will dawn and we will see God face-to-face. Redemption becomes sight. We're waiting for something. Let me close with just a look back at Luke 7. The story, we we have to mention it because it's one of the most splendid in scripture. Luke 7, 36 through 50, that was in the worship guide or New Testament text. It gives us this tangible picture of Psalm 130 in action. Luke 7, the woman was likely a prostitute, right? The lowest rung of society, no assurance, no hope, no forgiveness, right? But she heard that redemption came to town, that with Jesus there is unfailing, overflowing forgiveness to be found. And you heard the rest of the story in Luke 7, but some commentators argue further and say that this woman was actually Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene who traveled with the disciples and Jesus as they went on their way. She went telling about the news of the kingdom of God, that redemption, overflowing redemption has just come into town. How? In a person, in a person, Jesus Christ. Is she not a picture of Psalm 130? The picture of moving from utter guilty despair to assurance, to hope, to declaration? Are you a walking picture of Psalm 130? on that as you walk away. Are you a a picture of Psalm 130? Do you you have the assurance, the hope, the joy, the freedom? If you are not, you can be rescued and freed to actually hope in God. We do that by starting to ask God to show us our personal and profound offense against God, but we don't stay there. We then confess our hidden, nagging, and unconfessed sins to one another, perhaps someone today, here, or somewhere else in the next week, And perhaps if you've already believed in Jesus and you still feel that that felt guilt, believe in Jesus. Know that you have and know that he keeps no record. There's no scribbling. He remembers your sin no more. And then return here every week and join us in turning our eyes to the dawn. We wait for our redemption that we most certainly have. We wait for it to dawn and become sight when we see God face to face amen let's pray heavenly father oh what a treasure it is that you allow us to call you father that you have made us sons and daughters we have felt like illegitimate children we have run from you we have hidden we have hidden things all around the bedrooms of our lives we might say believing that if you found them or someone else found them, there would be no forgiveness for me. But Lord Jesus, there is because of the work you've done. Lord, as we feel the drowning, may we grasp hold of the hand or rather may we understand that it is your hand that grabs hold of us. We have no hands to grab it, but you grab hold of us. Give us faith, Lord Jesus, in your work and give us the hope for the dawn to come to see you face to face. It's in your name, Jesus, we do pray. Amen.